Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. For this special episode, we take a look at the latest developments from Westminster, including Monday's budget and the revised outlook for the UK economy, with Sarah Gresty, Head of Investments, Olivia Gleeson, UK Government Relations Expert, Luke Pierce, Asset Allocation Specialist, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Welcome to a special edition on the latest developments from Westminster. Once again, we have assembled just the right experts to decipher and unpick what is happening. Let's start with the news itself. Olivia, thank you for joining us again so soon. We have a new Chancellor, a very new budgetary direction, and a Prime Minister still on the ropes. Yeah, of course. I mean, happy to be here. I mean, I think I was thinking about uh, the events this morning. I was thinking there's one word that sort of grossly overused it in our line of work, and that's unprecedented. But I think you'll sort of have to let me use it. I mean, the events since Friday, as you've said, you know, appointment of a new chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, and then this morning, an all but complete reversal almost of the government's previous mini budget, uh, nothing short of unprecedented. I can't think of a, another example where we've seen this level of, I'll call it a pivot, uh, recently, perhaps, you know, sort of the U-turn to end all U-turns, you know, it's uh, it's difficult to think of, yeah, a different example. But I think we anticipated some fiscal changes, perhaps, with the appointment of the new Chancellor on Friday. I think I might have uh, mentioned a few on that last podcast, but, you know, 72 hours is a really long time in politics. And since then, we've seen a sort of complete shredding of uh, Truss's economic agenda and a shift sort of from this pro-growth tax-cutting mantra to a government that's very clear it will do whatever it takes to sort of ensure economic stability and prove the sustainability of public finances. Now, Jeremy Hunt this morning, I'll recap very briefly for listeners, I'm sure everyone was watching, he announced a pretty staggering package of changes to that mini budget that will provide an extra £32 billion saving for the UK per annum. It's almost <laughs> take me uh, less time to sort of cover what's left from the original mini budget. Um, than to run through every reversal. But just to recap, you know, government won't proceed with the plan cut to corporation tax. They'll restore the top rate of income tax. They'll keep the basic rate of income tax at 20% indefinitely. We've scrapped the fat-free shopping scheme. Uh, The cut to dividend tax won't happen. But most significantly, and I don't think many commentators saw this one coming, that generous energy price guarantee for consumers will now be scaled back from two years of support, as was previously announced, to now ending in April 2023 with HM Treasury to sort of review what happens after that point. So sorry, apologies. I hope listeners managed to sort of stay with me there. But I think we can all be in no doubt from the announcement this morning that sort of Truss's growth agenda is over virtually before it ever began. And this government's alternative focus is now on sort of reassuring those markets and focusing on sort of stability and certainty. Yeah, quite a U-turn there, and but thank you for um, reminding us of all the things that have changed. And obviously, the other question I was keen to ask you is, what does this mean for the Prime Minister's future? I think that's the question everybody's asking, will continue to <laughs> ask, isn't it? But look, a few, a few points here before we sort of get carried away. I and mean, firstly, let's look at the position of Jeremy Hunt, because I think that's quite an interesting one. You know, he's arguably now Britain's most powerful chancellor since George Osborne. He unpicks Truss's agenda with sort of a few hours of his ascent to the role. And, you know, very troublingly for the prime minister, he's made it clear that sort of he rather than her is clearly making the decisions on economic policy. He's virtually unsackable. And I think he now really represents the prime minister's best chances of survival. And if he can steady the ship, you know, a big if, 
and calm the markets, he might just be able to do that. So I don't think we should write off the current prime minister quite yet, given uh, so far Hunt's approach. And then second, for all the talk of the Truss's endgame, and I hate to be super boring and sort of bring up procedure here. Of course, it does remain to be seen how much parliamentary support Truss has to continue. But even if we assume she doesn't have parliamentary support, the mechanics of removing her to make way for a, a new prime minister aren't that clear. The 1922 rules state there must be at least one year between a vote of no confidence. And you'll recall that the most recent vote was only this past summer. So the actual mechanics of getting a new prime minister aren't particularly clear. And then, of course, even if trust were somehow to go, for example, she was to voluntarily resign, there was, of course, the issue of a clear successor. And I think, you know, the notion that the Conservative Party in its current state can unite behind a single candidate is far from given. And then the last thing I would sort of say here is that even if the different factions of the Tory party can agree on a single candidate, what they'll be thinking about is a general election and what, what you know a new leadership might mean for that. And I think if you have a new leader so soon to the general election, what sort of message does that send about stability and about certainty, which they're rightly quite preoccupied by? So I think there'll be many different factors that they'll be thinking about, um, you know, as we go forward from here with the with the current prime minister and potentially the next prime minister. But I think it's too early uh, overall to sort of call it uh, endgame, so to speak. Yeah, Olivia, thank you for that. Um, it's good to be a bit boring and kind of think back now and again. Um, so, Luke, you are obviously having to try and navigate all of this as one of our specialist um, team of investors. UK bond markets, the IOUs issued by the government seem to have recovered well in the last few trading days. So, is the worst behind us? Million dollar question. Um, I mean, we, we were already seeing quite enormous levels of volatility in UK government bond markets anyway, just given the inflationary backdrop. But investors, um, it, was, it was quite obvious that investors had become concerned around kind of perceived affordability issues of, of the now U-turn mini budget. And so they were demanding extra compensation to hold UK related assets. And that, that did include government bonds or, or gilts, as then otherwise known. I'm definitely not brave enough to declare the worst is over, but I do think the market reaction to today's announcement has definitely been a positive one. And so I think as far as investors are concerned, this does seem to be a step in the right direction. Now, at the time of recording, UK gilt yields are down around about sort of 40 basis points today alone, which is a staggering move. And I think that move really kind of um, partially unwinds some of that extra compensation that I mentioned just now as well. And then the other dynamic, um, which I won't get into too much detail here, we've actually got a, a, um, an in-focus uh, note coming out at the end of the week, more on this. Um, but the other dynamic um, that's worth mentioning as well is what's been going on in the pension fund industry. Now, if I was to sort of very grossly oversimplify, pension funds have been essentially forced to sell UK gilts in order to help raise cash to help actually fund other positions that they have within their portfolios and funds. And that forced selling has also been a big contributor to the volatility that we've seen in UK government bond markets. So lots of factors at play here, um, particularly over the last month or so. It's very, very difficult to know if the worst is over. But as I said, today is likely a step in the right direction from a market's perspective. Okay, thank you, Luke. 
Also, I know we went into this year holding very little in the way of government bonds, feeling that they were very expensive. That must be getting less so the case now. What's your views on that? Yeah, so it's probably probably worth thinking about this in two parts. So firstly, our strategic asset allocation. So as a reminder, that's the best mix of assets that we think clients should hold over the long term, obviously in line with that risk profile. And then the second part is the tactical asset allocation. So that's typically where we're making very small tilts to the portfolio based on our outlook, kind of anywhere between sort of three to 12 months or so. So if we start with the strategic asset allocation now, since our review of our strategic asset allocation or SAA um, at the beginning of 2021, as you said, we've held a pretty low allocation to government bonds, um, certainly in our meeting risk portfolios anyway. And there's kind of a lot of moving parts to that process, but a big factor driving that, I think, was the low returns on offer, just given how low yields were at the time. Now, that picture today is obviously quite different. And so when we come to update our strategic allocations again, the higher the yields um, on offer today will certainly be incorporated into our thinking. What I would say um, here, though, is that just because you are seeing higher yields today in government bonds, it doesn't necessarily translate into an automatically higher allocation in our portfolio. So it's always worth remembering that asset allocation is always a relative game. So we, we care about the trade-off between expected returns and, and risks amongst all the assets within our universe. So just as government bond yields have, have risen, so have cash rates too. So have yields on credit asset classes, um, expected returns for stocks have also increased as well. So we can't really just look at government bonds in isolation. Um, So that's the strategic side. And then on the more tactical side, we do have an overweight to U.S. government bonds at the moment as well. So here we think that economic trends uh, and in particular slowing growth and slowing inflation will be supportive um, for the asset class over the coming months. There is a bit of a question of how much further the Fed needs to raise rates to bring inflation down to acceptable levels. But we think there's quite a lot priced in right now. And so we do think yields are likely headed lower from here. Um, As ever, though, and as I kind of alluded to at the the beginning, um, these tactical views form quite a small part of the overall portfolio. And what we're really trying to do there is just consistently add a little bit of value each year, not trying to sort of dominate the, the portfolio outcome. Yeah, useful reminder. Thanks, Luke. Um, So what about sterling and maybe other UK-related assets? What are you seeing there? Yeah, sterling's been very, very interesting in amongst all of this, as what you typically find is that if you see higher yields or higher interest rates, that tends to be supportive or appreciative of a currency. So the currency just becomes kind of relatively more attractive to hold. Um, But of course, anyone that's sort of been, been paying attention the last few months will know that that hasn't been the case for sterling. And I think, again, that was a little bit more evidence to us of investors shying away from UK-related assets, just given what's been happening. Uh, But sterling, as as well as other assets um, that are tethered to the UK economy, so domestic stocks, they have responded positively to the announcement today. And in fact, sterling is now trading at roughly the same levels um, before the initial announcement back uh, towards the end of September. And there also seems to be a little bit of pressure taken off the Bank of England as well. So expectations for how far that they need to go have retraced quite significantly. Uh, At one point, that actually got to as high as 6%. uh, But that figure now is just over a little bit of 5%. So that's the peak policy rate um, in the near term. So again, probably a bit of a relief for the Bank of England in amongst all of this too. 
Okay, some good news in there. Thanks, Luke. And finally, Will, I wanted to come to you. I read an article that you and the team wrote over the weekend about changes in political ideology and resulting changes in economic growth. I wondered if you could give some of the highlights to our listeners. I don't know about highlights. I'll give you lowlights. Um, and actually, this <laughs> is making a tenuous link uh, between the job that the likes of Luke, um, the asset allocation specialists have to do and that that policymakers have to do. Uh, and it's really about, you know, if you think about, you know, what Luke and co, you know, Luke, JP, all the gang, um, you know, all the gang you hear from a regular basis, what they're trying to do is build um, and this includes Ian, the whole sort of CIO effort. Uh, it's all about trying to build kind of one-stop global exposure to the world of investments. Um, and like I say, there's some similar challenges. Both are trying to design kind of, you know, if you think about what policymakers are trying to do, they're trying to design kind of optimal high probability packages. Um, and both of them are to a degree informed by what's gone on um, or what works, what's worked and what's not in history. Now, with policy, one of the problems um, that faces would be political strategists and political thinkers is how to interpret the successes and failures of history. If a particular policy or direction of travel was tried in the past, how can we know that it was the policy itself that mattered? Um, there's simply so, so much, so much else going on at the time. Now, a good example is this kind of really, I mean, so uh, a heavily analysed period of uh, you know economic political history in the UK. Um, it's this moment, uh, well, I guess it sort of crystallised in the early 1980s with Geoffrey Howe's infamous budget, which I think there was 360-odd economists who were up in, a, up in uproar about, and they wrote into the Times. Um, now, many have argued that this latest mini-budget could have been a repeat of that, a very unpopular budget that actually turned out to be, uh, turned out to be the right direction of travel. However, the economic problems that were facing the UK then um, and the world at the time were totally different. And a lot of them actually in the UK's case, and I've written at some quite boring length about this on LinkedIn, so you can look at it if you want to know more. But a lot of these problems in the UK lingered from World War II in a sense that, you know, the necessary efforts to mobilise the economy for war and uh, sort of combined with uh, the fact that we sort of encouraged uh, our country companies at the time to compete not with the technological frontier in Europe, but actually with Commonwealth uh, countries uh, more for various other reasons as well. So there was all sorts of kind of structural issues to do with the UK economy in the period between 1950 into the 1970s um, that look quite different to what they look now. And perhaps also providing a juicier supply side list of um, targets from uh, uh, from which to uh, to, you know, to pick from and sort of you know move away but also you've got this other kind of huge factor then which is that the UK was joining the European Economic Community uh, in 1973 versus now obviously where we're leaving that zone so you know in a way how do you isolate what's important and what's not uh, now investors face similar problems uh, you know if I look back to inform me of how I should position for the future. How do I avoid the problems um, of always fighting the last war um, or even being positioned for you know, the wrong sort of investment, uh, investment piece? And actually, you know, we have the ability, you know, luckily, you know, because of the way that we can, uh, the guys on the team like the Paul Wessons and the Patricks, you know, uh, they can use uh, very complex statistical techniques to make more of the historical um, data that we that we have in a sense and being able to give us a a more diversified look and essentially being able to uh, you know mathematically imagine hundreds of thousands of different viable futures that's obviously very difficult from a policy policy context and I think generally we tend to exaggerate 
the um, the moments in our past. We tend to exaggerate the, the role of policy in the moments of our past. That's perhaps you know necessarily so. Um, the reality is that you know if you look at one country's history, it's incredibly noisy. One way to get over this in in sort of you know policy analysis is to look at similar policies across a range of different countries and how they fared. We talked about that with regards to you know OECD. Uh, you know, corporate tax rates and ensuing investment or whether, you know, tax cuts and inequality or growth can be related, all those kind of things. But again, you know, same sort of problems, you know, problems sort of arise with that degree of comparability, how hard you isolate other factors. I guess the point I'm getting to is extremely, it's extremely complex um, and you don't want to exaggerate one single strand of history or, or just the history that happened in a sense, because at all times there are hundreds of thousands billions, trillions uh, of potential outcomes from the current moment. And you've got to try and assess the full range of potential outcomes uh, from this moment. And in a way, what you're always trying to do is, in, in investment terms, picking the highest probability package uh, of investments to deploy in that always very uncertain world. And that's the last bit I would say, you know, we're always saying we live in, in uncertain times. Uh, and yes, you know, that is perhaps particularly or feels particularly true at the moment. But remember, it's always true. Um, whether or not the headlines make it seem more so, but we're always living in uncertain times. Whether we know it or not, that's a different thing altogether. I'm sorry, that was a weird rant to end off a very competent call. Um, but yes, it's nice to have Olivia and Luke, isn't it, to show how expert they are on these matters. And I guess I'm just trying to finish it off and say we're very lucky to have them. We are very lucky to have them as well. But I would say also it was a it was a good article. So recommend looking out for that on LinkedIn. And with that, thank you, Will. Thank you, Luke. Um, Luke, thank you, Olivia, for joining us today. And thank you, everyone, for listening again. Look forward to joining you again next week. Thank you. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation. All tax rules can change in future and their effects depend on your individual circumstances, which can also change. We don't offer personal tax advice. You should obtain this independently if you are unsure. Investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance.